Hello everyone. I'd like to welcome you to the fourth episode in our podcast series on the new rules on vertical agreements in the EU and UK. In this series, we are focusing on the impact of the new rules on agency arrangements, dual distribution, traditional and online distribution models, and areas where the UK and EU approaches have now diverged. My name is Fiona Garside, and I'm a senior expertise lawyer in the antitrust regulation and foreign investment team at Ashurst in London. I'm delighted to be joined today by Esther Kelly, a partner in our Ross's office, and Hayden Donnett, an associate in our London team. And today we're going to be talking about the rules on online distribution. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you very much, Fiona. Delighted to be here. Thanks, Fiona. Looking forward to the discussion. As listeners may be aware, on the 1st of June 2022, the revised EU Vertical Block Exemption Regulation, or VIBA, entered into force alongside new vertical guidelines. On the same day, the new UK Vertical Agreements Block Exemption Order, also known as the VABIO, entered into force. The block exemptions provide widely applicable safe harbours for vertical agreements from the EU and UK prohibitions on anti-competitive agreements if the parties have market shares of less than 30% on their respective markets and the agreement does not contain any so-called hardcore restrictions of competition. Today, we're focusing on how the new rules impact online distribution. Online shopping was obviously well-established by 2010 when the previous versions of the EU block exemption and guidelines were published, but e-commerce has continued to grow since then. And in particular, we've seen a significant growth in online marketplaces. Addressing specific issues affecting this type of online distribution has therefore been a long time coming. And the European Commission has had to consider a range of relatively complex and sometimes contradictory case law when drafting these new rules. But to reflect this commercial reality, this growth in e-commerce, both the exempt block exemption and the guidelines do now expressly deal with issues relating to online distribution. And this is the area where the revised VIBA and guidelines probably innovate the most compared to the previous versions. Today, we're going to talk about two main aspects of the new rules. First, how the block exemption applies to internet distribution. And second, a new regime for providers of these so-called online intermediation services or OIS. Um, so for example, that certain online marketplaces, app stores, price comparison, and social media sites. In the previous episode, Donald and Laura discussed some of the hardcore restrictions which will prevent an agreement from benefiting from the block exemptions, such as restrictions on passive sales and resale price maintenance. Both the EU and UK have now introduced a new hardcore restriction, which means that suppliers cannot prevent the effective use of the internet. Esther, what does this cover? Thank you, Fiona. That's an excellent question. And I think it immediately goes to the heart of some of the challenges that companies and then their advisors may face um, when trying to apply the new regulation and guidelines. The notion of the effective use of the internet appears multiple times in the documents without being clearly defined. There are examples of conduct that the European Commission considers to be permissible and examples of conduct that are so-called hardcore restrictions that are clearly not okay. Um, but there is some gray space between the two. If we start with the big picture, the guidelines accept that there are various legitimate reasons why suppliers might want to impose some restrictions on online sales, just as they may want to impose some restrictions on how brick and mortar sales take place. The reason for this um, includes to avoid so-called negative externalities in the economic jargon. The most obvious example of such an externality is one that we may all be familiar with. So that's where consumers visit a brick and mortar store to have a product shown to them by qualified salespeople, so-called pre-sales services, but then go online and buy it for a lower price. This is a classic free rider issue. 
the brick and mortar store has had to invest in qualified salespeople, um, but then that investment cannot be recouped and is instead taken advantage of by an online store that hasn't made the same investment. The difficulty here is that this limits the incentives for brick and mortar stores to provide quality services and therefore can ultimately lead to lower quality of service for consumers. So there are some reasons that we might have legitimate restrictions on online sales. At the same time, the Commission clearly starts from the principle that online commerce is a good thing that overall benefits consumers. So Commissioner Vestager, for example, noted that e-commerce should give customers a wider choice of goods and services, as well as the opportunity to make purchases across borders. And that's a theme that comes back throughout the online uh, discussion in the guidelines, the importance of not setting up artificial boundaries um, that could prohibit passive sales. So at least one thing is clear, total prohibition on any type of online sales is a hardcore restriction that would take an entire agreement outside the scope of the exemption. As I say, this is consistent with the overall scheme of the regulation and the precedence in the vertical space, because such an absolute restriction is akin to a passive sales restriction. And we know, of course, that those are problematic, as have been discussed in the previous episodes. And the hardcore restrictions also cover restrictions that have that indirect object of preventing effective use of the internet. Could you talk us through some of the examples in the guidance? Yeah, so this is where things start to get particularly interesting. So although the Commission's stated intent, and they've tried hard at this, was to make the VBA easier to use in day-to-day -day business, this notion of effective use of the internet will require some pretty complex self-assessment in practice. So what does the guidance do? It sets out a number of examples of clear hardcore restrictions. The first one that we might think about is restrictions that prohibit the buyer from using an entire online advertising channel. So what's an online advertising channel? That's something like search engines as a whole or price comparison sites, generally speaking. However, there are some nuances to this. So prohibiting a distributor from using a specific price comparison site would not generally be considered a hardcore restriction um, unless um, that specific restriction applies to the most widely used advertising service in that particular channel. Of course, in practice, determining which search engine or price comparison site is the most widely used may be difficult. So does this mean that if there are two price comparison sites available for a particular product, we can't prohibit the use of one of them if it has just one more customer? Obviously, some common sense is going to be needed in doing self-assessments. In some cases, it's going to be obvious what is the main most popular site. Um, and in other cases, um, that's going to be challenging. The guidelines try to clarify this by saying that essentially it comes down to the question of whether a distributor would still be able to make effective use of the internet or whether they are so restricted that it amounts to a ban on online distribution in all but name. But as I say, this will be a case-by-case -case assessment. Another example of a hardcore restriction is prohibiting a distributor from using the supplier's trademarks or brand names on its website. And this one seems pretty logical. Of course, you can't effectively use the internet to sell a branded good if you're not allowed to use the brand. How will anyone find it um, to purchase it from you? 
A third example that we might cite is one that has clear parallels, I think, um, with the notion of passive sales restrictions. And that's requirements to seek prior authorization uh, before making individual online sales transactions or a requirement to reject, for example, uh, foreign uh, credit cards from customers outside a distributor's allocated territory. So we have these examples and some more in the guidance, um, but there will clearly be quite a lot of work to be done in borderline cases um, and companies and their advisors will have to work through these um, quite carefully, uh, pending uh, guidance from the Commission in terms of their enforcement practice. Thanks, Hester. While the VBAR blacklists provisions or conduct whose object is to impede distributors from using the internet, it clearly exempts certain restrictions on the way in which online sales may be carried out. So Hayden, what types of limitations on online selling may benefit from the block exemption? Thanks, Fiona. So I think this is probably one of the most complicated areas in the VBAR and the guidelines. And I think to, to some extent, this reflects um, the, the history of, of online sales on the internet and some of the competition issues that have arisen in the past. And, and so while the VBAR and guidelines indicate that restrictions may be imposed in relation to the manner in which contract goods or services are sold online, it's also made clear that these restrictions should not indirectly have the object of preventing the effective use of the internet. Now, the obvious question to ask is, what does effective mean in this, in this context? And I think it's arguable that, uh, and quite difficult to identify any restrictions which would not have such an object. Um, any sort of restriction on sales through the internet arguably somehow prevents the use of the internet itself. So I, I think from our perspective, we think it's very likely to come down to a question of the, the degree to which a restriction uh, prevents the effective use of the internet. Now, in this context, the Commission does give some guidance uh, on, on this particular issue. It says that online sales restrictions generally do not have such an object where the buyer remains free to both operate its own online store and also advertise online. And I think this is an important principle that will guide companies in the, in the drafting of their, of their agreements. However, in relation to advertising, VBAR and the guidelines do provide a bit of a bit of a mixed message in terms of um, in terms of how how restrictions can play out. As as we mentioned earlier, the guidelines suggest that it's important that the distributor remain free to advertise online, but at the same time, the guidelines also state that online advertising restrictions can benefit from the exemption, provided that they do not have the object of preventing the use of an entire advertising channel by the buyer. So under the new rules, I think the question is going to be, when, when will a supplier prevent the use of an entire advertising channel? And as Esther noted earlier, a prohibition on, say for example, the use of price comparison websites, absolutely will be uh, an example of such a restriction. However, less absolute mechanisms such as uh, qualitative criteria are uh, more likely to uh, are going to need to be considered in more detail in order to assess whether they they fall foul of uh, of VBAR or not. Now the guidelines also indicate that dual pricing, which is where the distributor is charged 
more for sale made online than say, for example, in a bricks and mortar stores is in principle admissible and allowed under VBAR. However, there needs to be an economically justifiable reason for the difference in price. Thanks, Hayden. A complicated area that would definitely wait for further guidance as, um, as the Commission starts to apply the new guidelines in practice. Esther, now if we turn to some of the other restrictions that look to be more straightforward to apply. Yes, so I think one that is a little bit more straightforward um, relates um, to online marketplaces. So this builds on the CODI precedent, um, but it extends the principle of that judgment to all forms of uh, distribution of goods and services. So previously it was thought that this only related to selective distribution and luxury products. Two important points here. We've got the eternal uh, requirement that it cannot prevent uh, effective use of the internet. Um, and then secondly, we need to remember the distinction between online marketplaces, which can be prohibited um, in a general manner, and advertising channels, uh, which cannot. And so what's the difference between the two? The key distinction is whether a site offers direct online purchasing functionality. Um, if it doesn't do so, then it's likely to be an advertising channel. And so we couldn't ban them wholesale. So that would be like our price comparison site. Um, others that may be um, easier to, to interpret um, relates to um, requirements that a distributor operate one or more brick and mortar shops or showrooms. Uh, that's happened um, under the previous case law. And similarly, there are some um, possibilities to require a distributor to sell a minimum amount of goods or services offline, um, but that must be an absolute value or volume requirement and not as a percentage of the distributor's total sales. And then finally, um, the revised VBRA and the guidelines no longer require compliance with what we typically call the equivalence principle uh, when it comes to selective distribution. So that means that we can have different criteria uh, that might apply to online and offline sales. Um, which obviously reflect the, the difference um, in those marketing channels. Thanks, Hester. As we move into the second part of our discussion, I just want to remind listeners of how agency is um, considered in the online context for competition law. So as we touched on in episode one, companies active in the online platform economy are often considered to be agents under contract or commercial law. But for the purposes of the VIBA and the VABIO, a company will only be considered to be an agent where it meets the conditions set out in the guidelines. And these are more restrictive. So the guidance makes it clear that it's unlikely that companies active in the online platform economy will be considered to be genuine agents for the purposes of assessing their vertical agreements. And this is for three main reasons. First, the online platforms typically serve a very large number of sellers. So that means they don't effectively become part of any one seller's undertaking, as we say, so not part of the same kind of entity. Um, second, there are strong network effects and other features of the online platform economy that can result in a power imbalance in the size and bargaining power of the parties. And again, that means that the platform rather than the seller might actually determine the conditions for selling the goods or services. Uh, and therefore the commercial strategy. And finally, just to note that online platforms typically make significant market-specific investments, for example, in software or advertising, after-sales services. And as we talked about in episode one, 
this can be an issue in terms of agency because these companies will bear significant financial or commercial risks associated with the transactions that they intermediate. If you want a recap in more detail, then I'd encourage you to go back and listen to episode one, but that's just a, a high level reminder as we start to think about um, these online intermediation services providers or OAS providers, because not being treated as an agent is likely to be particularly problematic for these providers. Before we go into the guidance in more detail, Hayden, can you remind listeners how the Commission has defined OIS providers, please? Sure. So OIS providers allow companies to offer goods or services to other companies or consumers online, and they effectively do this with a view to facilitating direct transactions between those parties or, in a sense, uh, effectively an intermediary. The vertical guidelines provide a few examples of OIS providers, and these include e-commerce marketplaces, app stores, price comparison tools, and social media services. Uh, I think that the key is that an OIS provider facilitates two parties contracting with each other directly. Now, to, to add a sort of an, a level of complication to an OAS provider. Um, a number of these providers offer additional services or intermediation services, but under the, under the uh, VBAR, this does not mean that they're not considered to be an OAS provider. So for example, where an OAS provider also takes payment for transactions that it immediates or provides services such as advertising, ratings, insurance, or guarantees against damage, these types of services would not prevent them from being uh, considered to be an OIS uh, provider. Now, the, the concept of an OIS uh, is actually derived from other EU regulation known as the P2B regulations. And um, it's, it, there's also been a quite, a quite a development of some complicated case law uh, around what an OAS provider actually is. And I think it's it's going to remain to be seen to what extent that case law, which was not in a competition law context, is transposed into the competition law world. And I think we're going to sort of have to wait and see uh, how how that, that is applied in the VBAR world and whether there'll be sort of further clarity in this in this respect, um, which is probably not much comfort for companies who are sort of working out how to self-assess under, under these provisions at, at the moment. To add another level of complication, we also have what are known as hybrid OAS providers. And these are providers that not only sort of intermediate the sale and purchase of goods between uh, parties, but they're also active in the sale of, of goods themselves. Now, where an OIS provider also sells these goods and services in competition, the block exemption does not apply to these hybrid providers. However, the Commission has set out in guidance that it's unlikely to prioritise the enforce enforcement action against these types of agreements where they don't have um, object restrictions and where they don't, where an OAS provider does not have significant market power. However, uh, 
it, it will still, OA, hybrid OAS providers will still need to uh, self-assess under uh, Article 101 in particular. Um, in an interesting distinction, however, this sort of hybrid OAS model is uh, considered differently under the, the UK vertical agreements block exemption order. Uh, and so it'll be interesting to see going forward what the, what the differences are in practice uh, in the enforcement in the different regimes. Thanks, Hayden. There's certainly potential for some real divergence on this between the EU and the UK. And um, taking it back to the kind of higher level, Esther, what are the implications of being an OIS provider? So in addition to the important point that Hayden mentions about the exclusion of, of hybrid OAS from the EU rules, I'll, I'll mention a few points. Um, first of all, it impacts how an OIS provider should calculate their shares for the purpose of applying the 30% safe harbor. So the relevant uh, market for a non-hybrid OIS is that for the supply of online intermediation services, so not the market for the products that are eventually being sold uh, via that service. Second, it implies certain obligations in relation to MFNs or parity clauses that will be discussed um, in more detail in the next episode. Um, and third, it raises a number of interesting questions uh, in relation to the hardcore restrictions. So the guidelines make clear that OIS providers are considered to be suppliers for the purposes of Article 4 because they are supplying OIS services to those that want to distribute goods uh, via their website. So it's pretty clear in that case that an OIS supplier clearly cannot impose minimum prices on those buying online intermediation services from them. So an OIS supplier cannot require those wanting to sell via their site um, to apply minimum prices, for example. That's RPM. So this raises kind of a question in terms of what happens um, if the reverse scenario occurs. So imagine that we have a manufacturer of branded goods, um, and let's say this is a, a very high profile branded good. They use the OIS to reach customers, um, fair enough. The branded supplier wants to impose minimum prices at which the OIS can offer their branded goods. Are we talking about RPM or are we not? Here we reach an interesting definitional question um, and encounter some of the challenges uh, that are presented um, by potentially two-sided markets. Suppliers of OIS should also note the warning in Article 6 of the VIBA. This specifically refers to potential withdrawal of the benefit of the block exemption, even if uh, the other criteria are normally met, in cases where the market for the supply of online intermediation services is A, highly concentrated, and B, there are parallel networks of similar agreements. So this is another challenge for self-assessment, since if you're an OIS, you may not know if there are networks of parallel agreements because you wouldn't know uh, what your competitors are doing or, or you really ought not to. So it's an, it's an additional point where the OIS providers are going to need to be careful um, and are going to need to really think through um, the terms that they have put in their contracts uh, carefully with their advisors, I think. So there are other questions related to OIS um, that will also take careful thought, um, but I think overall, uh, the headline item is that those who fall into this category um, are going to need to think these things through uh, very carefully. Um, and I think we'll all be waiting eagerly for additional guidance uh, from the Commission. Thank you both for that very interesting overview of how the rules on vertical agreements have changed in relation to online distribution. 
Um, the revised guidelines have clearly made significant changes to the rules regarding selling via digital channels. And while it's welcome in some respects that the new rules offer greater clarity and flexibility for online selling, at the same time, the concrete application of these rules, particularly the rules relating to online intermediation services, could benefit, benefit from further clarification, and they may well add to the complexity of this area of the law. So as Esther said, we'll be eagerly awaiting further guidance from, from both the Commission and the CMA as well. Um, if you're interested in learning more about the new EU vertical block exemption regulation and the vertical agreements block exemption order in the UK, then we have a briefing available on our website and watch out for the next episode in this podcast series. That episode is going to cover the key differences between the new EU and UK rules. And as Esther mentioned, we'll highlight there the different approaches to parity obligations, also known as most favoured nation clauses. So do please check that out. To ensure you don't miss any future episodes, do subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. And while you're there, please feel free to keep the conversation going and leave us a rating or a review. Until then, thanks for listening. <laughs>